Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. All right, welcome to the 30th episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. Hard to believe it's been that many, whether you've been with us from day dot, episode number one, or you're just joining us now. We do appreciate your listening, and I would encourage you to head on over to the BonnerPrivateResearch.com website. And if you like what you hear, be sure to share our link and our content, audio as well as editorial, with your friends and enemies alike. We've got uh, plenty of great stuff up there. And if you want to reach out to me directly, you can always write to me at joel at bonnerprivateresearch.com. I'll read all your messages and correspondences, good, bad, or otherwise, and perhaps we'll address some of them in upcoming episodes of the Bonner Private Research podcast. And with that, let's get to today's discussion in which I caught up with my good friend and uh, longtime colleague, Mr. Dan Denning, who, along with Bill Bonner, is, of course, the co-author of the Bonner-Denning letter. From my temporary gigs in Sarasota to his Rocky Mountain bolt hole over there in Colorado, we talked about everything over the course of a good 45 minutes or so, ranging from the recovery from the, uh, the great COVID crash of 2020. We also had a look at headline inflation, that uh, subject on everyone's lips, it seems like, and also touched on a theme that I think you might be hearing a little bit more about in the near future, and that is the rising specter of something called climate lockdowns. You'll probably want to pay attention to that. Uh, so anyway, I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Dan Denning up next. How are you, man? And I'm good. Um, we journeyed here to uh, the, I guess you said the Gulf Coast of Florida. I've never yes. been to this side before. In all the times I've been to Miami and Delray and whatever for work and play but this is a i don't know how much time you spent on this side but it's a very different feel than uh than the atlantic coast i've never been at all but i've heard so tampa and up oh mm-hmm. no sorry you're, you're talking about the northern part like so we're in sarasota Florida. yeah okay i don't know where that is but um no i've heard it's quite nice and it, is it more of the snowbirds and the retirees or is it is it i think so yeah i think from kind of and i could be totally misrepresenting here we've only been here for a few days but uh from kind of naples on up it seems to be you know big um you know like gated communities and very very manicured lawns and uh and 
you know, a, a slightly kind of housewives of America uh, feel to it. Everybody, you know, playing tennis and looking good and being healthy. And uh, <laughs> it's a little intimidating for those of us who maybe aren't as keeping up with our workout schedules as we <laughs> would like to be. But <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, it's very different uh, from, you know, the river walk of San Antonio, let's say, which I was at, <laughs> at last week. <laughs> Look, if your skin starts to look like a leather saddlebag, then I'll know you've, <laughs> you've overstayed your welcome there and you need to leave. Right. That, although that could just be the Australian genetics expressing themselves uh, at, at last. <laughs> That's true too. Yeah. You know, I, I tend to turn uh, an orange color after about two or three weeks in the sun that the melanin in my skin just goes <laughs> like burnt orange or sienna brown or something like that. So it... And that's nice. That just stay, stays that way for months. So yeah, <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah. We used to call the Victorians that would come up to uh, up to bathe on the beaches of Queensland at the front of my house lobsters. Would come up, turn a, <laughs> turn bright orange, and then they needed to be shelled uh, immediately, <laughs> which they would duly peel. <laughs> yeah. But mate, how, how was it out in um, uh, out in your Rocky Mountain bolt hole? Well, it's uh, not much of a refuge at this point uh, in the summer for two reasons. First, uh, I woke up this morning and the sun was blood red, uh, which means there's wildfires in the mm-hmm. uh, in Colorado again. And you know, we were told that that now it would just be a fire season rather than the two extremely large, historically large fire fires or fires that we had last year. But it has been hot, uh, so it's a bit smoky out. But that hasn't um, that hasn't prevented people from visiting in in their droves. So, you know, California, Florida, New York, Illinois, Kansas, Missouri. You, know, you can walk through the parking lots in town here, and on a good day, you'll get thirty different states. So, you know, whatever the dangers, whether it's the Delta variant of COVID or firefight or fires. Um, uh, Americans are back on the road and they're spending money. So uh, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. So let's, let's get to that, uh, that subject on everyone's lips and on, on every headline, it seems inflation, inflation, inflation is uh, the big concern right now. So uh, I was wondering, looking up some of the, the latest data out of, uh, out of the government mouthpieces and, and they put um, you know, the official uh, CPI rate, I think the latest reading was uh, for the last month was 5%. Is that, uh, is that yours? Yeah. And then I went back to our old friend, uh, John Williams at Shadow Stats, who computes the, the rate using methodologies that were used by administrations in the past. So if you look at the way that the CPI was computed back as far as 1990, he gets a read uh, something like nine percent, and then if you if you use the methodologies that they were using as far back as 1980, you get a reading something more like 12 or 13 percent. So I got to thinking that was that seems more in line with I think what people would just kind of sense uh, when they're at the pump or at the grocery store. Um, but in any cases. Do you think that it's possible to know the exact number and is it important or is the trend and the acceleration uh, in particular of that trend more something to watch? I think they're related. I I think the uh, people have an intuitive sense of whether their cost of living is going up because it's 
you know, it's the money they're spending. So the, that's, you know, whether the government measures it accurately or not, people can tell, you know, if you go to the grocery store and there's not a lot of beef on the shelf and the beef that is there is expensive and you go to the gas station and, and the prices at the pump are up. Um, but the government statistics are designed to exclude those things. So you often hear core CPI, which is including energy and food and housing, or it's CPI X energy, housing and food. And you know, statistically speaking, they track month over month increases in inflation as outliers that uh, that are uh, excessively volatile. So they they need to be smoothed out. And from a also from a statistical point of view, our, our old friend Dr. Kurt Rishabosher used to talk about the hedonic adjustments, mm. where even though there was a nominal increase in prices in say automobiles they would say that the utility or the um, value in that particular good or service had increased by an even larger amount. So they deflated the price increase in a subjective way and said, yes, it may be $40,000, but you're getting $80,000 worth of truck. So (laughs) the truck is actually cheaper than a 1970s truck. So I think, um, you know, the best indication to me uh, of inflation uh, outside consumer prices was that you had both the S&P and the NASDAQ making new all-time highs this week, and the National Association of Home Realtors saying that the median house price in the United States is $350,000 now, which is up 24% in the last 12 months. So um, I don't think it matters where you look anymore because uh, almost everything is going up in price. And the, the chairman of the Federal Reserve says that that's transitory because there's a big spike in demand. As we come out of the pandemic, we've probably overstimulated the economy from a fiscal point of view and a monetary point of view with all the stimmy checks and the QE. And so he thinks it's going to be a blip. But um, our our view, at least at Bonner Denny Letter, is that it's a structural inflation, which is related to the long term necessity of the government to to go in deeper in debt and for the Fed to to keep buying that debt. So. Um, short term, everything's expensive. Long term, it's going to get worse. Right. So, uh, speaking of the Bonner Denny letter, you're uh, you're a co-pilot there. Uh, Bill Bonner just released his five-year uh, prognostication or uh, forecast this week, yesterday actually, uh, in which he predicted inflation, deflation, more inflation, and then <laughs> I think this is a technical term. Kaboom! Do, can you walk us through the, those uh, those highly technical steps there? Yeah, we were. I just spoke with him. We we recorded our Bill does a quarterly State of the World podcast that's available to lifetime subscribers of the Bonner Denning Letter. So we we just recorded that this morning, and um, it's a really important point because when you talk about the the sequence putting your money in the right place or at least understanding what's happening is is a huge part of not getting not taking the big loss which is what we're what what the main financial goal of of our investment strategy is <clears throat> excuse me so uh more inflation first is both consumer price inflation as the money supply grows and higher stock and bond prices lower bond yields so so in, in that score the inflation creates massive valuations for for stocks. So, for example, this week, what's driven the Nasdaq higher is 
Apple was a $2 trillion company, but Microsoft became a $2 trillion company this week and Amazon's 1.7. So it's, it's knocking at the door to the club 2 trillion. And that's interesting because uh, prior to this, value stocks had done really well uh, relative to tech stocks, but now you've got tech stocks just roaring back. And so the, when you look at it in total, you see the, you know, Robert Schiller's 10 year cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio is a, is a measure of valuations over time. And that's the highest it's ever been except for right before the dot-com boom. So from a, from a valuation point of view, you get more inflation, higher multiples, higher stock prices, but then you get a financial crisis and the financial crisis gives you lower valuations because 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 <laughs> prices come down. Although sometimes it, it gives you higher valuations because prices come down while earnings stay high. But um, but that's the first part is uh, more inflation in financial assets, then a crash. And the question is, does that crash uh, affect the real economy so that it slows down real in, uh, inflation in consumer prices? And it depends on who crashes. So what we saw in 2007, 2008 is, is it was the lenders, the home builders, and financial firms. And that slowed the growth of credit to the real economy. And so that was the pass through from a financial crisis to a economic slowdown. Bill's prediction is that that will happen again, but it will necessitate an even larger fiscal and monetary response from the authorities. So that if you get a stock market crash, government tax revenues will go down and spending will go up and the Fed's balance sheet will go from 8 trillion where it is now to, to 15 trillion. And so you'll get deflation in financial assets, followed by a massive attempt to reflate the economy driven entirely by the central bank. And that's the kaboom, because at that point, the dollar gives as reserve currency or foreign investors say, this country is out of control. It can't control its spending. In fact, it's it's growing, maybe not exponentially, but they've passed the point of no return in how they're going to finance not only their regular budget, but these extraordinary programs uh, like the infrastructure program, and then say there's an emergency recovery program. And let's not even talk about whether or not there's another variant that that mm-hmm. that triggers another shutdown or another pandemic response. So, so that's the kaboom is when uh, the finances go fully out of control. We don't know when. You know, Bill and I talked about: is this a two-year thing? Is it a five-year thing? Um, and the answer is is probably a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. But uh, so our preference is to is for cash to buy after the deflation in financial assets. And your risk is that you miss out on whatever upside is still there. So you know, the S and P is up thirty-two percent in the last twelve months. The Nasdaq's up forty percent. If we're wrong for another eighteen months. You miss another 40%, maybe 60%. I mean, remember 1999, the Nasdaq went up, what, 92%, something like that. So to me, it feels like we're 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 at that end of this mania. Right. So a lot of the early gains uh, are, are out of the way and, and the air is getting pretty thin up here. Uh, it's worth mentioning, I think you mentioned the the response to the past recession. Um and the famous legendary investor Stanley Druckenmiller, you shared uh, some 
some of his uh, work with me recently. He did a, uh, I'm just going to pull this up here because it was a 2021 uh, keynote um, address that he gave to the USC Marshall School of Business. And there were some really interesting comparisons uh, that he made in there between the response to this COVID uh, downturn, really crash that we hadn't seen um, with regards to the severity and the abruptness of the downturn in early 2020. So the response to that overlaid with the response to the previous half a dozen, or I think he put down five recessions. And I don't think people realize just how extreme the difference in response to, to those um, to, to last year's events were. So just for a couple of points of contact here, uh, I, I made a couple of notes. And one was that the Fed did more QE in six weeks of last year than the entire period from 2009 to 2018, which is a pretty, uh, a pretty insane statistics. Uh, people will recall that the, the Bernanke peak was $85 billion um, worth per month. Today, we have $120 billion per month, every month. And this is the new kind of, you know, this is just the new normal. Um, so it was, it's, it's an extreme response, but it's also been coupled um, with a, a, quite a phenomenal fact that the recovery, the bounce back, uh, at least according to uh, Mr. Druckmiller's numbers, um, it, it seems... It seems quite peculiar in that the the recovery since the this massive downturn um, is fairly unprecedented as well. So you have, for example, another point of contact. You have seventy percent of jobs that were lost during that massive initial downturn were recovered in the first six months. Ordinarily, that takes twenty five months uh, for that kind of recovery. Uh, GDP is back to pre COVID levels. TSA throughput numbers, I spoke with our friend uh, Chris Mayer just the other day. He monitors um, the number of domestic um, travelers per day. Usually pre-COVID, that number would be two and a half, 2.6 million. Got all the way down to 100,000 uh, during the depths of, of, uh, of the lockdowns and whatnot. That's back to comfortably over a couple of million and, and on its way north again. Um, you know, everywhere you look, retail sales I have here are 15% above what they were pre-COVID levels because of pent-up demand. So I guess the question there is, given that it seems like confidence is back, given that it seems like the economy is is boiling um, to the point of overheating, uh, it, how can this now be dialed back? What, Where is the will to turn this off? Is this possible? Will markets tolerate it? And more importantly, will voters tolerate it? Yeah, I think the, 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 if you look at the latest Fed dot plot, they say that they have no intention of raising interest rates until 2024 or 2023. And Powell himself has said that uh, he's not worried about inflation. Jerome Powell, the, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, and that, that inflation is transitory, not structural, not even cyclical, but just a, a product of these unique circumstances of overstimulating as you come out of a pandemic. So you're gonna see this surge, but it's this idea that, uh, you know, if you take a Red Bull in the morning because you need a little shot of caffeine, you put it in your coffee, or maybe you put a little Bailey's in your coffee, it'll get you going, right? <laughs> there you go. It'll get you going and, and, and you'll start, but it, it lowers your inhibition toward further 
stimulation and uh, <laughs> whatever kind that might be. And, uh, you know, then, then it just gets out of control for some people. And I remember talking to a Irish bartender in Waterford a couple of years ago when I was visiting Bill and they had to kick a guy out who was, who was just being a, a jerk as you do sometimes when you're, when you've had too many. And, uh, he said, yeah, some people just don't know when to stop. They don't know when to stop. And I think the Federal Reserve, it's tempting to say that they they don't know when to stop. So they've been doing 120 billion in QE since last year. So August 2019, the Fed's balance sheet was 3.7 trillion. Now it's eight, so it's doubled in that time. And you know, another point that Druckenmiller made is is normally when in in reaction to a recession and a tightening in financial conditions corporate balance sheets would deleverage. So corporations would pay down debt, certainly not increase debt, but they did the opposite because interest rates were so low, they increased it by nearly three quarters of a trillion dollars. And so um, why is this happening? I think that's the interesting thing is, um, if assuming they're not entirely stupid, well, then why? So the, the answer is they need low interest rates and they need QE because the government has $30 trillion in debt. So the definition of financial repression in the textbook is the purposeful suppression of interest rates so that borrowers can finance their debts. So in real terms, that means the rate of inflation is above the nominal interest rate. So it just makes paying debt uh, cheaper for the government. So they're doing it by design. They want mm -hmm. inflation to run hot and they want to keep interest rates in real terms at or near zero. Now, anything below zero creates a lot of real problems for them, which is what you're seeing with money market funds and reverse repos right now, that money market funds need to earn some interest on their short-term cash so that they can cover their costs. And when real interest rates are below zero, money market funds can't earn that interest. So instead, they're, they're depositing money overnight with the Federal Reserve to the tune of, of three quarters of a trillion dollars last week so that, uh, so that they're not in cash. So the Fed is creating other problems by, by trying to solve one problem, but the, they're not blind to inflation. They want it. That's the point. They, it's like Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men, where he says, you want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. They, <laughs> want, they want inflation above 2%. They need inflation above 2% because they are financing these tremendous deficits run by the U.S. government. So mm -hmm. from that point of view, you know, investors have to – the kaboom is later, but uh, the, uh, the inflation is now, regardless of what the Fed says. And so uh, you're expecting, I, I, I imagine, this to tick up uh, somewhat significantly over the next 12 to 18 months. I'm wondering at what level uh, it reaches escape velocity. Um, you know, I just even anecdotally, and I'm sure our listeners have, you know, their own uh, their own stories here, but, you know, down here in Sarasota, I went out to dinner just last night with uh, a family that we're staying with, some, some good friends down here. So it's my wife uh, and myself and our six-year-old daughter, uh, the other couple and their two kids, all kids six and below. So they ate off the kiddies menu. Um, you know, we had, I think maybe one appetizer, a single, a single bottle of wine. You'll be very proud. A single bottle of wine between four, um, <laughs> between four people. 
and you know, no desserts, no coffee. Um, you know, a fairly fairly simple post uh, post beach dinner at a at a little Italian restaurant. Nothing super fancy. Three hundred and fifty dollars. I mean, oh that to, that to me, maybe I'm just uh, I'm just accustomed to living in in Argentina, but I di- I definitely got some sticker shock from that. So I think um, and and it was not you know it wasn't from the a wine selection from the back of the book. It was, uh, you know, it was, it was something fairly moder- moderately priced. Um, so I'm wondering at what stage prices get get so high that um, that they just scoot away from the ability of of the average wage earner, whose whose hourly wage, by the way, is going flat nowhere. Um, and you know, we see we start seeing some real pain, and then that that translates potentially into um, into calls for more government intervention, <laughs> you know, more involvement, price controls, all the kind of stuff that I'm very used to seeing in Argentina, but I wouldn't think I would have seen uh, calls for in the United States. Yeah, it's a really good question because there's a whole interesting historical body of work to show the correlation between uh, food prices and inflation and grains and basic foodstuffs with with political instability that, you know, it hits the, the middle class and the lower middle class and poor people harder than anybody else. And we, you know, we saw that with the Arab Spring, which you know started with a, a fruit vendor who was prevented by the government from selling his wares and, and set himself on fire tragically. And But it was an indication that there was a bigger problem. Now, if Powell is right and the rest of the, the Fed is right, then it, you know, it depends. Like I've got a pair of broken glasses that I've been using uh, duct tape, gorilla tape and um, super glue to try and hold together for the last two weeks because the optometrist based in Boulder cannot source the frames mm. from anywhere. <clears throat> so, you know, there's these little pockets of, of backlogs in the global supply chain and, and food is included in that. Um, yeah. So I think that's, if, if those kind of, if those kinks in the supply chain are unkinked, then, then, you should see a normalization of prices over the summer, even as demand returns to, to pre-COVID or exceeds pre-COVID levels, or it just goes back to trend, which uh, which would show growth. But um, we'll see about that. I, I think that that doesn't address the second half of the inflation question, which is the year-over-year growth in money supply, the tremendous deficit spending by the U.S. government, which is only getting larger and the Fed's commitment to, or its unwillingness or un- inability to to taper the QE, so you're still showering the economy with money. And what we know from the past is that that does show up as inflation somewhere. Now, mm-hmm. usually it's in financial assets first, which is very good for people who own financial assets, but 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 not good when it starts to um, bleed into consumer price inflation. So. Um, Politically, I think that's a political question more than anything else. Is at what point do rising costs of living, rent, uh, fuel, food, school, travel, uh, hospitality, retail? When when do producers start putting up prices to the point where consumers start howling with pain? And then then what is the response? It could be UBI too. You know, there's. There's a, a version of universal basic income is rolling out in the next month anyway because of some tax reforms. So um, let's not forget that the pandemic has accelerated these trends toward 
making the government either the spender of last resort and the lender of last resort. And it's paying people's wages. And if food prices go up, then maybe we'll start getting, you know, food tickets and, you know, quota tickets of how many, how many <clears throat> fried chicken sandwiches can you buy from Popeye's in a month? Maybe 10, <laughs> maybe five, but uh, it's a good question. And, and we'll, it's worth watching. Yeah. I, I, I see that, uh, you know, lots of people have had taken to calling uh, the government big brother uh, in the wake of Orwell's work and the growth and growth of the surveillance state. But I think maybe big daddy is the more appropriate uh, term for the government over the last year uh, in that it's, you know, it's giving you your allowance, your stimmy checks, it's telling you when you can and go out of your, can and cannot uh, leave your home and for what reasons and whether or not you can or cannot fly and under what circumstances. And uh, this all brings me to, or brings us to another subject uh, at hand, which is one that you raised uh, with characteristic prescience, I might say, just a few weeks ago when you had sent around a private email to Bill and um, and Chris and I and, and uh, Tom Dyson and some others, um, guessing that we would see the term uh, climate lockdown enter the vernacular within the next uh within the next short period and lo and behold it was only a couple of days ago on one of the mainstream news channels that they ran a piece on on the specter of climate lockdowns suggesting that the the exact kinds of curtailments of liberties uh that we all endured last year um when the government was telling us that we weren't allowed to go out to the grocery stores or or whatever um with uh, only with special exceptions, that they may be introduced to meet what is being billed as uh, the climate crisis. And I notice um, President Biden is out on the, you know, rattling the the, the climate sabers or whatever the metaphor there would be. <clears throat> uh, Chuck Schumer is, um, is rallying for Biden to declare a climate emergency, which no doubt would accede all kinds of new powers uh, to the federal government to be able to act um, in extraordinary manners, given given the the, the crisis at hand, uh, but some of the some of the suggestions, and you know, not from just one or two sort of weirdo academics in in their ivory towers, but from the very people who brought us climate lockdown, uh, rather COVID lockdowns. This is the World Health Organization, for example, certain factions in the UN, um, research bodies out of the UK are calling for really things that would have seemed just absolutely out of control if you had floated those ideas in 2019, things like government controls on your thermostat, only being able to fly when it's quote unquote morally justified, um, you know, attacks on private ownership of cars. Uh, there was, there's one, um, uh, there are a few Australian scientists that are calling for having climate listed on death certificates as a cause of death which you can imagine what the what the legal um, ramifications of that would be with regards to commercial liability and all kinds of stuff turning every factory in, into a potential you know something like an asbestos uh, poison plant um, co2 ration cards where uh, government bureaucrats determine how much energy you're allowed to use, under what circumstances, whether you've met your quota, you get debited or credited, like all kinds of 
monitoring of our behavior and our lifestyle that again, really 18 months ago would have seemed, you know, like something out of a, a Bradbury in type dystopia and now seem like not only are they possible, but perhaps even imminent. Um, what's your, what's your read on, on all that bright news? <laughs> uh, I, th I think Huxley was, was more right than Orwell that uh, what happened, well, what's happening is the, uh, in, in the brave new world, um, narrative, the 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 thing that justifies a permanent state of warfare is an external enemy, and it's armed conflict with Eurasia, Oceania, and um, what's the other one? Can't remember. Um, anyway, I just finished reading Brave New World because it had been such a long time since I read it, and the, you know the interesting point about that world is that instability is the enemy that justifies the hyper-engineering of stability. And in order to hyper-engineer stability, people have to literally be genetically modified to perform a role in a designed society. And the goal of that society is stability and happiness and safety. Because in a world where there's risk, where you can either become very wealthy or very poor, that's the definition of instability. So like in a you know, when you add heat to a system in, in chemistry and physics, you molecules move and the mobility creates fire and it creates light in some instances. But all those things are dangerous because things are moving relative to one another. And from a political point of view, that generates conflict, or as we say, inequality in economic terms. So in, in, um, in Brave New World, the solution was to drug everyone so that they remained in a permanent state of happiness. They didn't suffer, they didn't age, and they didn't value uh, beautiful things, and they didn't value truth, because those things involve suffering and pain and contrast between ugly things and pretty things, or good things and bad things. But if you take all that out, you get this uniformity <clears throat> of meaningless contentment that uh, that leads to you know this dismal brave new world. So I think um, there are people who are who have looked at what happened in the last year with the pandemic and said, oh, we can make that happen now. Uh, but what's required is a permanent state of emergency. And because there's maybe there's a Cold War with China between the United States and China, but the advantage of a global pandemic or a virus that's constantly mutating and it has endless variations is that psychologically you're able to instill a permanent sense of anxiety and fear in the public, which then justifies this incredible overreach into private life. Um, and these incredibly audacious things, like I saw a guy who was saying that if we can't discourage people from eating meat because it's the right thing to do, and they just won't eat cockroaches and bugs, then what we could do is we could genetically modify the digestive system so that people were unable to digest animal proteins. And so, you know, we could, and people could voluntarily take that. So they wouldn't be tempted to have a ribeye for dinner because they knew that if they ate it, their body couldn't eat, you know, their body couldn't process it. That's, that's, that is, you know, beyond dystopian and bizarre. It's this, and that's exactly what, what Huxley was talking about is the genetic modification of human beings 
so that they served their purpose in a society whose main goal was stability and happiness. And uh, I think there are people who genuinely believe that that's what we're on the threshold of being able to do. And uh, it's terrifying. And, you know, I, one thing I'm glad about, about being back in the United States right now versus Australia or somewhere else is there are still more firearms in the United States than there are people. (laughs) It's going to, you know, if you want to make those sort of things compulsory or you start trying to enforce that level of compliance on physical movement, on diet, uh, on financial capital flows, on, on financial repression, you're also going to accelerate the people who are going to be non-compliant. So we've, we've seen that a lot of people will willingly go along with it. And in fact, they will put their arm up in the air in a salute and they'll wear an armband and they'll go along with, um, with whatever they're told to do. But, uh, but there's plenty of people that won't. And what I worry about is by accelerating all these climate crisis initiatives to restrict individual freedom economically and politically, you're going to radicalize a lot of people, which you were doing anyway with monetary policy by creating this incredible inequality. So those are not promising trends. The, the only upside is they're moving, even though they're moving faster than we expected, <clears throat> you know, they're, you still can do things about it. And that's what we're going to be focused on on the newsletters. What can you do about it, both financially, physically? And then, you know, like you and, and Bill and Tom, you all have families. That's what you're also looking out for. You don't invest just because it's fun and competitive. You're you're trying to solve a problem, which is how to provide for yourself and your family in a highly uncertain world. So uh, the good news is we've got a lot of work to do. The, the bad news is it's it's uh, it's getting harder every day because of inflation and and other financial factors. But um, you know we're 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 plugging away. Right, right. Well, I think you've put enough on the table there, mate, that we've uh, that we could probably hatch another uh, half a dozen or so uh, conversations, which we will do uh, in future. Touching on, I'd like to get Tom's take on um, on you know new modes of education, for example. It's something I'm very interested in. Um, obviously, with uh, with our own little one um, up and coming, and yeah, the idea of of to the extent that we can, mitigating political risk by being internationally mobile. Um, you know, obviously, with the work that you and Bill are doing, uh, maintaining some financial sovereignty and independence, uh, which is one of our greatest weapons, of course, about uh, against being at the the whim of uh, of those <clears throat> powers that be. And then, of course, re- remembering that uh, that this process is a long. A long process of reading and educating oneself, and and uh, you know, staying up to date with these things. And unlike the Huxleyan dystopia, um, which I always found was scarier than the Orwellian dystopia, where in the latter books were outlawed, you weren't allowed to read them. But in the Huxleyan dystopia, the impulse never arose to read one in the first place. So there didn't need to be laws against that kind of stuff. Because as you said, people had been genetically pre-programmed to uh, to have the the fire of, of curiosity extinguished from the get-go. So let's hope we don't lose that. But mate, thanks for taking the time this morning. And uh, we'll get together again real soon to keep chatting. Yeah, thanks, Joel. And uh, good luck. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. 
You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.